be sitting in the front row, so I'm just going to scoot up. <laughs> All right. Ruth chapter 3. We have now officially made it halfway through the book of Ruth. Charmed up chapter 2 last week. We start chapter 3 this week. Uh, chapter 1 focused on Naomi. Naomi and Ruth coming back to Bethlehem. And then in chapter 2, we talked about Ruth. Ruth went out in Boaz's field. She was gleaning. And now in chapter 3, the spotlight shifts to Boaz, the Redeemer. Uh, this book was given to us as a picture of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and what he would do. Uh, just kind of like um, Adam and Eve. I mean, Elimelech and his family, Naomi, uh, they were in Bethlehem. They were in the house of bread. They were completely provided for. And then famine hit. Famine hit, and they were driven out to the land of Moab. When Adam and Eve were in the garden completely provided for, they were in a good spot. And then sin hit, and they got driven out of the garden. But before they were driven out of the garden, God gave them a promise that there was going to be a redeemer, somebody that was going to come along and save them and crush the head of the serpent. But then they had to leave, and they had to kind of scratch out a living, right, in this land now filled with death. And Naomi and Ruth now are out literally trying to scratch out a living as Ruth had gone out to the fields. But it's a beautiful picture, Ruth the Gentile and Naomi the Jew being provided for. They're going to meet their redeemer, Boaz, just as the Gentiles and the Jews were introduced to their savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a really cool picture. So last week we left off with Ruth out in the field and she got invited over to lunch. Boaz invites her over. She's sitting with Boaz and the reapers and she is given the elements of communion bread and wine. It's like, come sit next to me, take the bread, dip it in the wine. She's given communion. We talked about that. And then when she gets up after being refreshed, she actually has more than enough. She takes it back home to Naomi. Once she's refreshed, she goes back out to glean. And Boaz tells his reapers, he said, listen, I want you to take some of the barley. And I want you to take it out on purpose, some of the bundles. And I want you to just drop it right in her path. So he tells her to come up next to his young women. And sometimes we talk about how sometimes God just drops things in our lap and how uh, we need to contribute, right? We need to give generously to people that come along in our path. So communion and contribution. Then we talked about how after she had gleaned, after she had beaten out everything that she had, she picked up that bag and she carried it back home. And how we each have a load to bear. We each have a responsibility. There's work to do. God has wants to come alongside us. He wants us to come alongside him and partner with him in the work that he's doing. There is work for us to do. Um, not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. And the most important thing that he told us to carry was our cross, obviously, that place where we go to die. So she carried back there, and then when she gets home and Naomi finds out what she's been doing, where she's been gleaning, she gets introduced to the covenant redeemer in Boaz. So we talked a little bit about that covenant redeemer and what he does when she finds out the grace and the mercy that's been given to her. And lastly, when... Ruth starts to relay the story incorrectly. Boaz told her to stay with my young women. And she starts telling Naomi, she's like, look, he told me to stay next to his young men. Naomi's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you need to stay with the young women. Stay away from the men. Stay with the women. That could be trouble for you. So she gets counsel. That's what we talked about. She sticks close to Boaz's counsel. We need people in our lives, men and women, that we can be linked together, do life with, that are going to point us back to the truth, biblical truth, that are going to give us godly counsel. So we've been able to work our way through Ruth section by section. And when I looked at chapter three, it's really, it's kind of a whole 
picture here. And I, I thought we were going to have to do the whole chapter, but as I got into it, the first five verses, there's a lot of detail in here that I wanted to get into. Very important. So we will go ahead and pick it up. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, and whose young women, uh, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that I say, all that you say, I will do. So as we read through this section, it seems kind of strange, right? Seems a little bit weird. Naomi just found out that they have a covenant redeemer that has taken notice of Ruth and has blessed her totally. And so her mind starts going into matchmaker mode. She's like, wait a minute, stay away from those young guys. We've got a redeemer here. I'm going to try to press the issue. And she just finished giving Ruth some really good advice, some really good counsel. Stay away from the guys. Stay with the women. Now she starts giving her some shady advice. This is weird. She goes into matchmaker mode. Um, now, you have to remember that Naomi was a bitter woman. She came back to Bethlehem, and they called her Naomi. She said, nope, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. I'm angry about my circumstances, and so she tries to start taking things into her own hands. She cares about Ruth, but she also knows that running after these young guys ain't going to do much for her. <laughs> they don't have anything. They're not going to be able to provide for her, too. Now, I'll say this up front in case I forget, but God works in and through our circumstances, the things that happen in our lives, even despite us. So many times things happen, and we want to come up with a scheme to fix the fix that we're in. And so we try to press the issue. We start praying for things that we think are best for us. But in reality, we don't know what's best for us. And God is so gracious and so merciful that he works through our circumstances, even in spite of our misguided attempts. I call this one misguided. Uh, Naomi is giving Ruth some misguided advice, right? This is not the best plan, but she is going to try to force this thing to happen. Uh, I also call it misguided because Ruth is the miss. And she's being guided. <laughs> Double meaning. Thank you. See? Better than last week. All right. I heard somebody say once, they said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And he'll laugh. I don't think he's laughing, but I do know that he wants us to trust him, to trust him wholeheartedly. And so she starts to launch into this speech about, shouldn't I pursue what's good for you? I mean, I want to pursue rest for you so you don't have to be out in the field doing this stuff all the time. But she also knows if it goes well for Ruth, it's going to go well for her as well. Because the Gentile is provided for, the Jew will be safe too. Right? That's the way it goes. God provided a Messiah for the Jewish people, and they rejected him. But God knew this. It didn't take him off guard. And so, because that happened, then the message went out to the Gentiles. There is now a Savior. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, it's provided for everyone. And Apostle Paul Apostle Paul spent the last few years of his life pouring out to this fact that salvation had now been presented to the Jewish people. And he's writing to the church in Rome, and he writes in Rome, or sorry, in Rome, Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. It says, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call her beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Now, we don't know if Naomi is banking on the integrity of Boaz here. Like, I'm going to send her down there, but I know that Boaz is, an, you know, he's a, he's a righteous dude. He's going to do what's right. He's not going to take advantage of her. Or maybe she just thinks that the ends are going to justify the means. Like, he's already, you know, he's already a redeemer. I'm going to send her down there. Even if something weird happens, it's okay because this is what needs to happen. We don't know if that's the case. But in verse 2, it says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Boaz is at the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place of separation. It was a place of pounding, basically. They would bring the barley in. It was a multi-step process, and I don't want to bore you with ancient agriculture today, <laughs> but I'm going to. <laughs> so they would bring the barley in, and they would dump it on the threshing floor. And what they would do is first, like probably what Ruth was doing is she was just taking her bag of barley and kind of whacking it with a stick to get the grains off of the stalks. They were literally separating uh, the, the seeds there. The field in the Bible, a field is a symbol of, did I know? The world, right? The field in the Bible is a symbol of the world. And so they would, but gotten cut out, they were beating it with a stick. Sometimes they would actually just dump it all on the threshing floor and they would bring an ox in. And they would just kind of march an ox or an animal over all the barley to kind of crush it out. That seems a little risky to me. I've seen a lot of stuff come out of an ox before. <laughs> Marching it around on something that I was going to eat seems a little risky. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, he writes, In the Mosaic Law, you weren't supposed to muzzle an ox as it tread the grain. It's one of these weird ranked scriptures. Like, Don't muzzle an ox as it treads the grain. Basically, he was speaking of the people that are teaching, the people that are pastoring, they should share in the benefits of the congregation. That's kind of what he was talking about. But in the Mosaic Law, you weren't supposed to muzzle. He was supposed to share in the harvest as he was working. But the threshing floor was a place of pounding and separation. In 2 Corinthians 6, let's see if I can find it real quick. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. 6, 16, and 17. It says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are to be called out and separated from the world. It was also a place of sacrifice. We're given a story in 2 Samuel 24 of King David, and for some reason it stirs up inside of him that he wants to take a census of all the people. He wants to find out how many men are in Israel and Judah. And so he summons his commander, Joab, commander of the armies. He says, I want you to go around and find out how many men we have. Now, there's only two reasons why you would take a census. One was for taxes, right? Find out how many people you had that you could raise money from. And then the second was your fighting force. How big could my army be? And so Joab tries to talk him out of that because all their faith, all their hope was supposed to be in Jehovah. It wasn't supposed to be in their own strength. I mean, how many times did God deliver them when they were completely outnumbered? Completely outnumbered. There's one time that happens in the future where they are surrounded by the Assyrians. Huge Assyrian army. It looks like they're going to be wiped out. They're totally outnumbered. And God sends an angel down. One angel slaughters 185,000 of the Assyrians. One angel against 185,000. That's pretty good odds. I like that. I'd like to have an angel standing beside me if I was going into battle. 
And Joab tries to talk him out of it. He's like, nope, I want you to do it. So Joab's like, fine, I'll go do it. And he goes and he counts all the fighting men in Israel and Judah, comes up to 1.3 million men that were able to wield the sword. And when he tells David that, it says that his heart struck him. He was like, I should not have done that. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have tried to figure out what we could do in our own strength. And he said, God, please take this guilt from me. And in walks the prophet Gad. And Gad comes in and he says, David, shouldn't have done that. And so even though he was forgiven, even though he was repentant, there were still going to be consequences. And so Gad says, listen, you have a choice between three things. You can either have three years of famine, you can have three months of running from your enemies, or you can have three days of pestilence. Take your pick. And David says, may we not fall into the hands of man. Let us fall into the hands of God who is merciful. He's already had experience running from his enemies. Not, a, not an enjoyable experience. Just to let us fall into the hands of God. And so God sends this angel out to execute judgment. Um, and three days of pestilence, 70,000 people die because of David's disobedience. 70,000. He's coming up to Jerusalem and the angel gets there at the threshing floor. And God says, enough. No more. We're done. And so Gad comes in and he talks to David and he says, listen, you need to go to the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, where the angel stopped. You need to go there. You need to buy the threshing floor and you need to offer a sacrifice to God because he has now stopped the plague. He stopped the pestilence. And so David gets his crew together, gets his entourage, and he goes down to Aruna's house. Now imagine if you're at home and a bunch of black cars pull up, regardless of how you feel about it. And Biden and his team of security guards get out and they start walking up to your house. I'd be a little freaked out. I'd be like, I, my, I filed my taxes. <laughs> I got them in on time. Why are you here? But he goes up to him and he says, listen, I'd like to buy this threshing floor from you. I need to offer a sacrifice to God. And Rune's like, man, you're King David. You're awesome. Look, I've got oxen here. I've got their yokes. I've got the you know winnowing forks. Take it all. I give it all to you. David's like, he has this classic line. He said, I will not offer a burnt offering to my Lord God that cost me nothing. I won't do it. And so he pays him for the threshing floor and he offers a sacrifice there. The threshing floor was also a place of sacrifice. Then after the threshing came the winnowing. Now the barley, they had brought it in on the stalks and they had, you know, crushed it all off. But now you had all these little pieces left parts of the stalks and leaves and things like that, the chaff. And so what they would do is they would wait until evening when the wind would pick up. And then they would take these forks and they would get a scoop and they would kind of throw it in the air. And what would happen is the breezes would blow away the light chaff, the wind would blow that away, and then all the barley, the seed, would just fall straight down. So over and over again, they would just be doing this and the wind would be blowing it away. And so it was another process of separating the usable from the unusable. The, the good stuff from the worthless. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is at the Jordan River doing what he does, dunking people. And out come the religious people of the day. Out come the Pharisees. Out come the scribes. And he sees them coming. And he's, he's like, wait a minute. Who told you of the incoming judgment? Why are you guys out there? He calls them a brood of vipers. If you guys have been watching The Chosen, you know that ain't a good thing. It's a pretty serious insult. Um, he has a, I'm not going to ruin it for you if you guys haven't watched it. He has a conversation with John the Baptist, and he said, I hear that you called the Pharisees brood of vipers. Whew. Like, that's a rough one, John. Like, hey, just speaking the truth. So he says this in Matthew 3, 
Matthew 3, 11, and 12. I baptize, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John here is telling them, not only are you a brood of vipers, you are worthless. You are chaff that's going to be blown away, that's going to be burned up. So there'll be this huge pile of grain afterwards, after the winning was done, and that's where Boaz is laying. Um, they've threshed, they've winnowed, and actually there's a third part of the process. <laughs> it was called the sifting. So not only would they crush and separate, not only would they winnow, but they would also sift. Sifting is an analogy in the Bible for testing. For testing. They would take these sifters, they were kind of, you know, a couple feet wide, and they would put the grain in there, and they would, you know, kind of sift it. The, the grains would fall out the bottom, and they would kind of throw it up in the air like this. And again, the wind would take some of the chaff, and they would go through this process until the seeds fell through to the bottom. And then you would be left with, you know, basically some of the little impurities. There would be some rocks and pebbles that would be left in there. But everything else would be gone at this point. They were trying to purify it. Um, Bob's not here. <laughs> a long time ago, Bob and I went down to Guatemala, and we were going on their missions trip, and we were working at a hospital. And what we were doing at the time, it was a block, um, brick block, and we were mixing concrete that we could, you know, put on the walls. So we were basically concreting the walls to make them smooth. And the guys there, the Guatemalans, were actually mixing the concrete in the wheelbarrow. And our job, as the new people, was to sift the sand. Okay, and they had these boxes. They're probably about this big, and they had a great screen on the bottom. And we would have to dump the sand in there and shake it back and forth. We had a name for this sifter. We called it the Diablo sifter. The devil sifter is what we called it. Because you would put this in here, and you would shake it back and forth like this. And before long, your shoulders were burning, and nobody wanted to do it. And they just laughed at us. They're like, these stinking gringos can't even sift sand over here. And they're working and they're doing all, they're like, look, do it like this. You know, and we're like, I'm trying to. <laughs> I do this every day. In Luke 22, we have an interesting passage. This is one of those passages that's kind of up and down. We find out that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And then we find out that they're going to have the Last Supper. Him and his uh, disciples are going to observe the Passover meal. And then when they're up there, he tells them, listen, one of you is going to betray me. And then after he says that, the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest. What? Like Jesus just told them, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Judas, the one who dips with me in the dish. It was pretty obvious. And that point, I have to imagine, because I've been watching some of these dialogues take place uh, in the chosen, I think of this kind of stuff. I'm like, maybe at that point when they realize, oh, okay, it's Judas. Like, Peter's like, it's not me. I'm the first one picked. <laughs> and John's like, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I mean, look at me. I'm reclining on him right here while we're having something to eat. <laughs> and James the Less, James is like, well, didn't he say that the last shall be first? I mean, I'm James the Less. Nobody even knows anything about me. Maybe I'm the greatest. And Jesus lovingly steers them back on track. He says, listen, guys, I came to serve, not to be served. If you guys want to be great, that's how you need to be. Um... You know, if it was me, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, look, I just poured my heart out to you guys. I just told you what's going to happen. I'm instituting something brand new here. And you guys are over here arguing about who is the greatest. I'm out of here. That's what I would have done. Then Jesus predicts Peter's denial. 
right after this. This is in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, says his name twice. That's bad. <laughs> Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So this is a tough one. He predicts that Peter's going to uh, betray him, that he's going to deny that he even knows him. Now, I've heard this verse a lot. And I thought when I read this that it meant that just Peter was going to be sifted. He says, Peter, Satan's demanded that he may have you, but I've prayed for you. But actually, these first two instances of you here, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you. Those two yous are plural. So he meant all of you. Satan has demanded to have all of you, all of you disciples, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, specifically, singular, because you're a leader and the guys are going to need you. So after this happens, I'm going to need you to build up your brothers. These are all going to get sifted. And if any of us are going to put our faith, our hope our trust in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian and you're trying to follow his commandments, you are going to be sifted. You're going to be tested. It's going to happen. There's a progression here in the life of a believer. Um, you're taken out of the world. And then the big stuff needs to come out first, the obvious stuff, right? Don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls who do. <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's obvious. Then some other stuff in your life starts to shed, the chaff, these things that are going to, get into your life and keep you from being as effective and usable as you would be. Like that. <laughs> the chaff starts to blow away. Dropping old habits and creating new ones so that we can work in the spirit of, of Christ in our life. And then lastly, there's a sifting. To get those pebbles, those rocks, those little things, those hidden things in our life, those impurities, those hidden sins, that we can get those out so that we can be purified. First Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8. Peter says this. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuous of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of your faith will prove its genuineness. It'll purify it. Amen? All right, then Naomi says, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Speaking of purity, Naomi says, You need to go get cleaned up. You've been out in the fields all day. You've been harvesting. You've been sweating. You stink. You need to go take a shower. And so it's time to make a good impression. I've got plans, but you need to be able to present yourself properly. In Ephesians 5, Paul is writing to the church about walking in love, but also walking in purity. He says, be imitators of God. You know, walk in love just as deep as Jesus did. Stay away from immoral people. Don't be partners with them and be wise. Make the best use of the time um, and understand what God's will is. So this is Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. And he just got done talking about husbands and wives. He just addressed the wives. Here he talks about the husbands. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. 
So, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. Are we as husbands, this is a good gut check, are we as husbands living for our wives, dying to ourselves, dying to our selfishness, serving them the way Jesus did the church? Because if I'm doing that, and if I'm leading my wife spiritually, this is what this is talking about, cleansing her with the water of the word, leading spiritually through the Bible, blessing her, if I'm doing those things, she doesn't have any problem coming under my authority, my headship. But if I'm living selfishly, if I'm not leading her spiritually, if I'm saying, listen, I'm living for myself, where's dinner? I'm going out with the guys. She's going to have a problem with that. The whole aim of Jesus' atonement for the church was to make her holy. Atonement literally means at one meant. At one meant. We were separated from God by sin. The only way we can be joined, made one with him again, is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he laid his life down to present a bride to himself as spotless and holy, to sanctify us, to set us apart. All right? We are no longer of the world. Sanctification is an act, but it's also a process. Once you are saved, you are sanctified, but then there's the continual process of being sanctified where you are threshed, where you are winnowed, where you are sifted. Make sense? So then we're to be cleansed by the washing of the water with the word. Cleansing is essential. And the uh, imagery here is a scrubbing, like a surgeon getting ready right, to have surgery. It's scrubbing like in a bathtub. Once we're saved, there needs to be an immediate change. There needs to be a repenting, a turning around. But how do we change? Like how do we know what we're supposed to change? We're supposed to read his word. Read the things. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. So we can't love him. We can't follow him. We can't be purified if we're not following his commandments, if we don't know what they are. Now, the Pharisees, the religious people of that day, were really into rituals. They were really good into washing. And they were only doing it, though, for external show. They would never eat with unwashed hands. They would sit down at the table. It didn't matter if you had just washed your hands a few minutes before because this was a ritual. And what they would do is they'd sit down, they'd take a pre-measured cup of water, and they'd pour it over their hands, and they would do the other one. Then they would you know, scrub their hands to get them clean. And then they would recite a prayer as they were doing this. And if you were really devout, you would do it in between courses. So in between the first course and the second course, you would actually do this washing again. In Matthew 23, 25 through 28, this is Jesus here. He's towards the end of his ministry. 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Now, Jesus is pronouncing these seven woes to the Pharisees, and he's warning them. This is kind of a final warning before he goes to his crucifixion. He says, you guys are missing the point. This is not about external cleansing. It's about letting God clean you from the inside out, clean you spiritually. You can fool people for a certain amount of time. Um, if people aren't around you all the time, you can fake it. But you can't fool God. He sees right through you. Say this again, um, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He looks all the way into your heart. We can't fool him. He wants to wash you clean and present you to himself as a pure bride without wrinkle. You know, bathing is a very personal thing. And spiritual cleanliness, spiritual cleansing is a very personal thing. 
We can fool a lot of people. You can put nice clothes on, you can comb your hair, you can put some cologne on. But if you've been out in the field, out in the world, working, you're going to stink and people are going to notice. And then she tells Naomi, Naomi tells her to anoint herself. Washing's good. We also need to put on perfume. All right, you're clean. Now put some ointment on. Anointing in the Bible always speaks of the Holy Spirit, speaks of the Spirit in our lives. Once we've been set apart, we also need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so that we can be empowered to live this Christian life. First, we're made holy, and then we need the Holy Spirit. See, once you're saved, once you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and says this in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I mean, how did David do these mighty acts? How did he slay the giant? How did he become a mighty man of valor? See, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. But the real question is, did the Holy Spirit have you? See, David had the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit also had David. And he did some incredible acts. Are we following the leading of the Holy Spirit? Or are we kind of dragging him around behind us as we go? <clears throat> Something to think about. Listen for his voice. Be led by the Spirit. Remember the Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan comes along, he finds the guy on the side of the road. He's all beat up. He pours on his wounds wine and oil. Cleansed by the blood and then also anointed by the oil of the Spirit. In Hebrews 1, the writer, speaking of the Messiah, quotes Psalm 45, which tells us that God anointed him, Jesus, with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. Jesus had the fruits of the Spirit flowing out of his lives all the time. Love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things. People love to be around Jesus. He was fun to be around. I said it before, he keeps getting invited to parties. He didn't turn down a free meal. You have to take these, these visual images out of your mind of Jesus being this very somber, very serious person. That was the religious people. That was the Pharisees. That wasn't Jesus. Okay, she's to wash and anoint. And lastly, she's to put on a cloak. Change your clothes. A lot of the translations say, put on your best clothes. Like, go to your closet and find the best dress you have and put that on. The Bible says a lot about garments. It says we're to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? When the prodigal son came back, they put a robe, the best robe on him, put sandals on his feet, ring on his finger. It spoke to authority. It spoke to identity. And that's what the Bible is talking about here. In America, we have kind of a melting pot, so we don't really have a distinctive way of dress in America. But stereotypes exist because at one point they were true. So if somebody walked through the door and they were wearing a sombrero, pretty good guess, probably from Mexico. If somebody walked in and they were wearing wooden shoes, weird but maybe from Holland. So, or a sable hat or pointy shoes or a kilt, whatever it is, that would identify the person and where they were from. So, speaks to identity. Alicia and her kids, was it last weekend? It seems like it was a lot longer than that. Where you guys had your... Last weekend, they did the Shine Show. It's been a long week. <laughs> and it was all about identity. It was all about finding out who you are in God and believing who we are in Jesus. In Isaiah 61, under the... Uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the, power, the prophet Isaiah writes a messianic chapter that Jesus actually takes and uses as his mission statement. It's really cool. This chapter in particular points 
to a Savior, somebody who can rescue us and save us. So turn to the book of Luke. I thought I was going to say Isaiah. Luke 4, 17. This is interesting because Jesus has gone into the synagogue and they handed him the scroll. He gets to teach today. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who have been oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops right in the middle of this sentence in Isaiah 61. It's kind of strange. He stops right there. Why does he stop? Well, now we get to turn back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 2. We'll pick it up right where he stopped. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus stops in the middle of verse 2 because... He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not his vengeance. Because God's righteous vengeance is going to be pointed at Jesus on the cross. He didn't need to get that far. So he stops right there. Pretty cool. But then he says that he gives us a headdress instead of ashes. He gives us a crown. Back then when you were mourning, you would put on sackcloth. And you sometimes they would sit in a pile of ashes or they would put ash on their heads. And so our Catholic friends, when they have Ash Wednesday... Put the ashes on their head. Symbolize this is a time of penance. This is a time of fasting that we're going to have leading up to Easter. So he takes away that. He gives us a headdress. And then we're anointed with the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Not only does he remove the ashes, but he also anoints our head. And then a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Some of the translations say spirit of heaviness. And I just want to encourage you guys. If you're in a season of life right now where uh, you feel depressed or if you feel bummed out, or, you know, anxious, whatever's happening in your life right now that's got you down. And I encourage you to put on the garment of praise. To just praise God. Either put it on in your house, put it on your car, whatever it takes. If you put on the garment of praise, that spirit of heaviness, of anxiety, of depression, whatever it is, is going to flee. It's going to leave you. Too many Christians today are walking around looking like they've been sucking on prunes. <laughs> looking grumpy. Looking serious, looking somber. That's not the way we're supposed to look. Some people take it super serious. Like I said, you have to take these images of Jesus out of your mind. Kids were running up to Jesus all the time. So much the disciples were like, get out of here. Get these kids out of here. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let them come. I never see kids running up to the Pharisees and the scribes. They don't run up to grumpy people. They run up to people where the fruits of the Spirit are flowing out of their lives. And it wasn't like he didn't have anything on his mind. You know, he stuck with these guys, these group of stinking sinful men that don't listen very well, apparently, because he was always having to remind them of what he said and explain it to them because they didn't understand. And by the way, he doesn't have any place to stay. He doesn't have any extra pairs of clothes. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't know when he's going to be provided for. He had a lot on his mind. And yet he was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. He was fun to be around. 
Why? Because he had his heart tuned in to the Father and what he was saying. He had his eyes on his mission, which was to redeem you and I to make us holy for a pure bride. Now, Naomi says to him, don't let him know that you're there until he's done feasting. Harvest time was a time of celebration. It was a party, especially after all these years of famine. They have a big harvest. They're going to party. So the barley was left on the threshing floor, and then they went in, they partied it up, and then Boaz came, and he laid down where the barley was so he could protect the harvest. That's what he was doing there. In Mark chapter 2, Mark 2, 18 and 20, Mark's gospel, which is really Peter's gospel, he's telling Mark this. And there's questions about fasting here. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, Why have John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as the bridegroom is with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is saying, I'm coming to prepare and declare the year of the Lord's favor. They can't fast. It's a celebration time right now. It's party. So Naomi says, when he lies down, observe the place where he goes. Jesus didn't lie down until he was done eating and drinking. He had the last supper with his disciples. That was the last meal that he ate. Then he was crucified and then he was laid in the tomb. And then she says, observe the place where he's laid. Where did the women go after Jesus was crucified? After the Sabbath, they went to the place where he was laid. I think that's pretty interesting. Then he always says something strange, uh, which has been... Debated for centuries. Go get the girls if you want the kids. It's been debated for centuries. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. I want to be clear here. I did lots of research this week on this because it's been debated. Nothing inappropriate happened at the threshing floor. Um, it was pretty amazing to me, actually, when I looked up what some people had written. Some of it was pretty vile. Um, and people just thinking that a lot of uh, something immoral happened here, but it doesn't fit with the story. Boaz is a picture of our Savior, of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And if Naomi sent her down there, not really thinking that the ends would justify the means, Boaz, as we'll find next week, puts a stop to it right there. And anything that would have happened at that point, any kind of intercourse would have been a sin. And our Jesus didn't sin. So she sends him down there, sends her down there, and we find her at his feet. If we want to know what Jesus is going to say to us, we've got to be found at his feet. I think it's interesting. I talk about Mary and Bethany. I, you know, I love this. This is the reason why God gave me this name of this church, Bethany. All the amazing things that happened there. Mary and Bethany was found at Jesus' feet. Remember Mary and Martha. Martha was doing all the cooking. And Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. She got upset with her because she was just hanging out with Jesus. And then later on, we find Mary at Jesus' feet again when she breaks the alabaster jar and she anoints him. She's at his feet. I read this week about a life-size granite sculpture that was done by a Danish artist, um, Thor's Walton, I think his name is. Anyway, he had this life-size sculpture, this granite sculpture, and he had created it in such a way that you couldn't see Jesus' face if you're standing and there was a sign next to it that said, if you want to see the face of Jesus, you have to be at his feet. And sure enough, if you got down and sat at the feet of the statue, you could look up and you could see Jesus. Right? 
if we want to know what he's going to say to us, we have to be found there, listening for his voice. We're going to go through tough times. Those tough times are meant to separate us. They're meant to get the junk out of our life. We're going to be sifted and tested so those little things in our life can be taken out, so that we can be pure, so that we can be used. Barley ain't going to be used real good if there's a bunch of junk in it. So we need to be purified. And then once we grasp our identity, who we are in Him, that He has given us a headdress, a crown instead of ashes, that He has clothed us in righteousness, that's what our identity is found in Him, then we can just be content to put on that garment of praise, sit at His feet, and listen to what He wants us to do. Amen? Let's worship.